Our theme all weekend has been the word wonder. Wonder's a great word. Lots of nuances that the word wonder has in it. For instance, wonder can be used in a way when you think about an inquisitive question that you have. For instance, why is the sky so blue in the winter? I wonder why it's so blue. That's one way you use the word wonder. You can also use the word wonder when you're uncertain about something and it creates a little bit of tension. So you get a text from somebody and you're like, hmm, I wonder what they meant by that. Right? So there's a, there's a wonder in that respect. There's another kind of wonder, which is the wonder, like it's wonderful, like it's full of awe. So think, for those of you who have little children, the moment when your kids come down on Christmas morning and they see the presents under the Christmas tree and they're like, this is awesome. If you're in that kind of frenzied phase of life, you need to know, like, that's, savor those moments, because when they get older, that, that's, it's not there anymore. It's just, <laughs> like I was thinking about this and remembered one Christmas it was so awesome. Somebody had given us like all those, those plastic uh, toys, like um, a setup of a kitchen and a workshop. So, so like Christmas morning, there was all these presents and most of them we didn't buy because they were secondhand, they were used toys. But our boys came down, they had no idea they were used and they were unwrapping, they're like, this is awesome. They had hammers and all the others pounding on those things and like, this is the best Christmas ever. And inside I'm thinking, you're right it is because this cost me nothing, you know? Like, yeah, so it was wonderful for them and wonderful for me. Or, or think of it like some of your kids who are young, they, they love the ramp and they're like, dad, watch this. They run down the ramp and, and there's something beautiful, isn't it, about that kind of innocence and, and awe that comes out of a child and then what happens though is that we tend to lose that as we get older i mean if you saw a man running up and down the uh the, the ramp and he's like honey watch this and you'd be like what's going on right or remember when my kids were little i'd take them to target and i'd be shopping and i'm trying to control them so i'd make the, the car the car a race car you know so i'm shopping you know grabbing stuff off the shelf well imagine you come to target and i'm doing that by myself right you'd be like Security, what's going on? You know, I'm, how you doing? You know, just be like, what? So you just, like, when you become an adult, you, you lose some of the wonder. I found an article this week that put it this way. If you want to witness a natural display of a sense of wonder, just observe a child. A child's whole world is viewed through the eyes of wonder and excitement. A child has no judgments of why things are so, but rather a child is in awe of life and views life through innocence, purity, and curiosity. You may have often heard the term be childlike, referring to our adult self to let go and be more open and curious. Listen to this. The truth is we lose our sense of wonder as we become adults. Isn't that true? Look, that's true not only as it relates to people, experiences, a place, maybe a place that as a kid you thought was awesome and now as an adult you just, it's become so common you lose the awe. But if we're honest, this is also sadly true when it comes to the Christmas story. I mean, we're reading a text today that I would imagine most of us have heard probably a hundred times. Man, if you've been in church for any level of years, you've probably heard about a thousand times. Even if you're not yet a Christian, surely you've watched a Charlie Brown Christmas special and saw, heard it read, or it's, it's just not an unfamiliar story. And because of that, we can lose the wonder. And with that, there's some real cautions 
So this morning what I want to do is take this very familiar text, I want to unpack it, help you understand how this wonder was revealed, how this wonder was experienced, and then at the end, I'm going to ask you to think through seven checks, seven signs that your wonder might be in a little bit of trouble. So let's look at what we find. First, wonder revealed. Last week we were looking at Matthew's gospel. Matthew's aim was to reach a Jewish audience and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke has a similar aim but a different audience in mind and so he writes with the verbal precision of a physician and he collects stories and data in order to demonstrate that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Text begins with a set of facts. These facts are designed to locate the event in history to help you know when was Jesus born, but more than just proving that it really happened, Luke's aim is to illustrate the way, the beautiful way, frankly the wonderful way that God intervenes in human history despite all of the mundane and normal events. Look at verse one. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So here's what happens. Luke locates this during the reign of Caesar Augustus, which would be like saying this. In the days of the Civil War, so immediately, you're thinking through presidents, culture, dynamics in the nation, or if I would say, in the Nixon administration. So the marking of with Caesar Augustus is not just who's ruling in Rome, but the entire environment that was taking place during the Roman Empire. Quirinius was governor of Syria. We know very little about him other than he probably was some sort of um, local governor that was connected to the people and was a puppet of Rome. Caesar Augustus, however, we know a great deal about. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar, became heir to the throne by virtue of an adoption, and in 27 BC, the Roman Senate conferred on him the title of Augustus, which meant the exalted one. Caesar Augustus was not his original name. He reigned in Rome for 44 years. His, his reign was considered really the golden years of the Roman Empire, and part of the brilliance of his reign was the way in which he reorganized the empire. Lots of different people groups, lots of different factions, and Caesar Augustus found a way to try and bring the nation together. And part of that attempt is likely related to this registration. So everyone is required to return to their hometown. Look at verse three and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now this would have been a major event, an event that people would have remembered, and here's why. Raise your hand if you, if you would consider your hometown to be somewhere else other than Indianapolis. Raise your hand. So your home is somewhere else. Okay, see all those hands? So imagine if the government said, look, our new way of doing taxation this year is this. Every single person has to return to the town in which they were born, and that all has to happen within a 30-day window. Can you imagine? the kind of upheaval, the challenge, the, the difficulties that, that your family would have. You'd all be on the road. There'd be all these people all over the country heading different directions to try and get to their particular spot. I'd have to go back to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Who wants to go to Kalamazoo, Michigan, right? So you go back there to register. And so what Luke does, he sets this, this moment of Christ's birth right in the middle of this major moment in, in, in Roman history full of its taxation, its census, its particular rulers. There's this idea that the human 
government is sort of rolling along and it's as typical and as even annoying as what you could imagine and in the middle of all of this, God intervenes. I love the fact that God does this. Kings are ruling, taxes are being paid, people are traveling, and yet God is on the move. Mysteriously and sovereignly, God is working out his plan, and yet he's doing it in the midst of ordinary, everyday life. That's happened in your life. For instance, if those of you who are married, think of the moment when you saw or met your spouse for the first time, and think how radically different your life is today because of that single encounter. Or maybe you're in a job right now because of a particular conversation that you had with somebody or a connection that then led to another conversation and you're actually in a career right now and everything pivoted at one particular moment. Think of how you landed here this morning. How some of you are members of our church and how you landed at College Park. What happened? How did that take place? My story of how I got here started in a, on a beach in 1992. In 1992, I was sitting at a beach in Gull Lake, Michigan, asked a guy about an internship. That internship led to a conversation and a role at a church. That role in the church led to meeting Jim Greer for lunch. Jim Greer led me then to go to seminary, Grand Rapids Seminary, and that relationship with him led me to connect with his church. And so I'm here today in 2017 because of a conversation in a beach in Gull Lake, Michigan in 1992. And if you didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, that'd be like mind-blowing and a little scary. And yet at the same time, what you need to know is that God's working out his plan for every single one of us by virtue of intervening in the midst of our lives. God works in the midst of normal and ordinary moments. And for some of you, you've lost the wonder of what that means. Because that's really important because there's some of us who are in the middle of moments when you are waiting or you're in confusion. You're looking at the circumstances of your life and you're like, nothing's happening. And what you don't know is something's happening, you just don't know what yet. God's on the move. He's just lining up the circumstances. And listen, one of the ways that you you fight anxiety is by being amazed at how God was working out everything according to his plan. And if he's done it in the past, and he's showed it self to be faithful in your history, he can certainly do it again. Listen, you can trust him for your future, and one of the ways that you fight worry is with wonder. You stand back and see the beautiful way in which God has worked, and you marvel at it, and you slay the sin of worry by elevating affections like wonder. Verse four gives us some additional specifics. We learn that Joseph went up from Galilee. He leaves Nazareth. He travels to Bethlehem, a city of David, because Joseph is a part of the royal family of David, part of that lineage. There's an Old Testament prophecy that relates to the legal reign of David throughout Israel's history, and Jesus was a part of that legal line. Nazareth was a small and insignificant town. It was about 95 miles away. Joseph and Mary traveled by foot and on, we think, some sort of animal. Bethlehem, 95 miles away. So that's, that's the distance between Indianapolis and Rochester, Indiana. There really is a city called Rochester, Indiana. I chose it because it's 95 miles away. And that, that's the distance between Bethlehem and Nazareth. They had to go to Bethlehem because the prophet Malachi had prophesied that 
the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. It says, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. And then Bethlehem would also be the site of a tragic genocide that we'll look at next week when Herod learns of this king and was threatened by him and then killed hundreds of children in this little city. These, all, these facts create a particular picture here that's important for us just to, to marvel at, not the least of which is verse five. It says that Joseph goes there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Don't miss that. Don't, don't just blow over that verse. So they're legally married, but they've not consummated their, mar- their marriage. They're, they're betrothed in, in the sense that they're more than engaged, but they're not technically husband and wife yet. And so Joseph goes back to his hometown with a pregnant woman who's not yet his legal wife. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? It's like you going back to your high school reunion and everybody knows. I mean, don't, don't think that people didn't know. Surely news had traveled, somebody in the, it's only 95 miles away. And here is Joseph and Mary and their back in the city where Joseph was born. In verses six to seven, we find the actual birth narrative. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's lots of things that we could unpack. Firstborn, Mary had other children by Joseph later, but Jesus is her firstborn, not her only son, but her firstborn The Christ child is wrapped in strips of cloth, bundled, even like babies are bundled today. Here's Jesus, who is the Son of God, famously laid in a manger, this feeding trough for animals, because there's no place for them in the end, which probably means that there was no appropriate place for Mary to give birth. So they're in a a stable, a crude, overnight accommodation. The point more than anything else is this, that the Christ child is born into incredibly humble circumstances. So while there are mighty emperors who are seated, while there are imperial rulers, while there are ruthless kings like Herod, and while there are powerful armies armies at their command, here is the Messiah who's born in a tiny little village and in a manger. And here is this irony that becomes the central way in which the followers of Jesus are to think about how they are to live. That God exalts the humble and he levels the proud. One commentator said this, the irony of the most important event in history taking place in a manger should not be lost sight of. It reveals how God elevates the lowly and humble and rejects the proud and mighty of the world. Now don't miss this, just think of that. Consider the fact that the Messiah enters into the world and his entrance will be very different than what anyone would have ever thought or anyone would have predicted and that becomes a harbinger of not only how Christ would live but how he calls all those who become his followers to live. Which means that as you think about your last week you need to ask yourself, so how how did last week go in terms of self-centeredness? 
If you're a follower of Jesus, part of the wonder of this moment is we have this example in Christ that God exalts the lowly and he humbles the proud. As it relates to your own sort of proud heart when someone didn't give you credit or someone treated you in a way that you didn't feel like you deserved, where does your heart go and how does the wonder of this moment factor in? Or when you're filled with anxiety and fear because you think if I humble myself or if I act in a way that sort of lets them momentarily take advantage of me or if I acknowledge that I've done wrong or I humble myself in this situation, I could then somehow be negatively impacted. Here's the example of Christ, which is no wonder why the Apostle Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition. How can he say that? Because it's the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's the heart of what Jesus did. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do not look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Just think of that. That is a weird way to live. And then he says, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. Just the wonder and the awe and the irony. Hmm. Does this passage make you wonder? Does it fill you with awe? Oh, it should. It's how wonder is revealed. So the second thing, let's look at how wonder is experienced. We, the scene turns now from Mary and Joseph in the manger to now these shepherds. If you could design the announcement of the coming of the Son of God, my guess is you wouldn't do it this way. If you're into marketing, this is not a great way to start. Because what happens is the message of the Christ child coming comes to those who are in the margins of society. The announcement comes to a group of shepherds and they're, the fact that it comes to them is really ironic because shepherds are not a well-respected lot in Jesus' time. They were considered unclean by the standards of the law. They had a, had a reputation of being a bit dishonest and unruly. So I was trying to think through, so. Let me give you a modern day example of this. I'll, I'll try my best, and forgive me if this pushes the line a little bit with some of you, but the best I can come up with is like a biker gang, okay? So black jackets, crazy skulls on the back of their jacket, dark bikes, imagine 30 of them, and they, they circle up in your cul-de-sac. All of a sudden, you look out the window, what do you think? Well, you might think, oh, my family came here, so. <laughs> So you might, think, you might think that, okay, or, and you laugh. Why are you laughing? Because it, it makes the point, right? So, or you might think, man, what's going on? You know, even if it says bikers for Jesus, you're gonna be like, whoa, like what's this about, right? So immediately there's, there's this, this image that you have, and this was the case with the shepherds, that your immediate assumption would be, no, you don't, like you're not gonna reveal this to them. Like, people aren't gonna believe them. No, no, you, you should reveal it to kings, like, this should be announced to the Sanhedrin, the, the rulers of Jerusalem. This, this should be landed in the Senate. But no, 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 no. The gospel comes. The first group of people that it's announced to are those at the margins of society, and this is what makes the gospel so special, especially if you feel like you're at the margins, especially if you're here today, maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time, and you're like, I don't understand all this. You know what the beautiful thing is? Neither did the shepherds. 
And the beautiful thing is, is that the first people that the gospel comes to are not religious elites, people steeped in the law. No, no, the gospel comes first to the people least likely to be respected and revered and those who would consider themselves to be an outcast because that is the way the gospel always works is it reached even to people who feel like they could never be on, ins- on the inside track. It's beautiful. So don't lose the awe of that. And then what happens? Verse nine, what a sight to behold. A single shepherd appears to these shepherds. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, wouldn't you be? So they're minding their own business, polishing up their Harleys, right? Thinking about where they're gonna get dinner. And all of a sudden, an angel appears, boom, in the night sky. And the glory of this angel now floods their environment. And suddenly, they are absolutely filled with fear. The result is the angel says this to them in verses 10 through 12. Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. There's so many things here. I mean, it's so familiar, isn't it? But just, he says good news. That's the word that we get our word evangelism from. It's the word often translated as the gospel. It means a news that's really good. And what is the good news? The good news is that there is a king who is coming, whose name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. He says this is coming to all people, meaning God is expanding the reach of his grace, not just to the people of Israel, but to all who would receive this son. This day is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of a savior who is Christ the Lord, connecting the birth of this little child to everything that had been talked about before. And then, what happens next must have been unbelievable. Just imagine that you're there. Suddenly, one angel, glory around you, announcement comes, and all of a sudden, boom, the whole sky fills. The Bible says, a multitude of angels. And we're not talking like angels with harps, like singing. We're talking about heavenly warriors, like built angels, muscular, maybe swords, the kind of thing that you're like, all right, we're in trouble and the sky is filled with them, so many that you can't count. I mean, one angel's announcement would have been enough and it would have been striking you with fear, but the whole heavens now filled with all of these angels was meant to be overwhelming force and overwhelming communication, and the entire night sky is filled with these heavenly warriors and they pronounce this statement, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the heart of the entire message of the Bible. This is the heart of the gospel. It is. Glory to God, as the NIV says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Man. It means that God will receive glory as the peace of God comes to those who are made right with God. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says this, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does that mean? It means that the whole purpose that Christ comes in order, is in order to glorify God by helping those on earth to receive peace when the favor of God rests upon them. How does the favor of God rest upon them? It comes to them as Jesus saves them from their sins. It's unbelievable. And yet the the announcement, the, the text is, is so familiar that we could easily lose our wonder. These shepherds are the first to hear the good news, and after they hear that message, their response is instructive. Look at verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then skip ahead to verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. So here we have the experience of them hearing the good news, of seeing the Christ child themselves, and this created joyful wonder within them. They went back to where they were, and yet they were filled with incredible joy at the news that they had just learned. This, friends, is the story of Christmas. It's unbelievable, it's amazing, it's filled with wonder. At least it should fill you with wonder, and now what I want you to do is to walk with me through kind of a wonder check. The danger of the text that we've just reviewed is that you could easily lose your wonder. You could say, heard that, read that, known it. You could approach this with the spirit of, I know, I know, I know, I know, baby, manger, shepherds, yeah. And the result is that you could lose the awe and wonder of what's here. What's more, you could take this, and that could then actually be characteristic of your entire experience as it relates to Christianity. So you could be here today, and while technically you're a follower of Jesus, if we were to do a diagnostic analysis of your heart, we would find it to be wonder light, or maybe wonder absent. So I found a blog this week that takes up this question. It lists seven signs that you've lost your wonder over Jesus. So we're gonna take a quick test. Here's what I want you to do. You got 10 fingers. We're gonna talk about seven signs. As I go through these, I want you to keep score. If I hit one and you're like, yep, I need to work on that, then do like one, and then just hide it like this, one, two, okay. So you can just do that, all right? So I just want you to keep score and kind of think, like, like do something, or just like have this register in your head and go in one ear and out the other. Like, take your hands and just privately, quietly, and you count. How's your wonder meter? Number one, your highest passion for Jesus is past tense, rather than present tense. You know what that means? It means when you think about your walk with Jesus, there was a time, man, when you were on fire for Jesus, and that's been ages ago. The tragedy is that for many of us, our greatest passion for Christ was in the first weeks, months, years, when we came to follow him, and as we've gotten older in our understanding of truths, we've begun to forget, even to neglect the beauty of this wonder. Too often our faith settles into a wonderless routine. Number two, you have to make yourself do evangelism. You see, people filled with wonder about Jesus 
regularly and willingly and joyfully talk about him. Because let's be honest, the things that we're excited about and the things that we're pumped up about and the things that we are in awe about are the things that we talk about. And so the reality is if you aren't all into Jesus, if you're not filled with wonder, then it's no wonder that you don't talk about him because the reality is, is you're not so into him. So there would make, it would make sense why you're not so into evangelism. Number three, reading the Gospels no longer makes your heart leap. This person writes, remember when you devoured every word about Jesus, you ate it up because you wanted to know him more fully. If that desire for his word is no longer there, you've left something behind, probably your wonder. Some of you, if you're honest, you open the scriptures because you're more afraid of guilt than you are longing to see something about God. You open your Bibles because you know I should read rather than I want to be here because I want to see the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. You reading the gospel no longer makes your heart leap. It could be because your wander, your wander, your wonder has begun to leak. Number four, you don't grieve sin like you once did. Again, he writes, we must ache over our sin when we see it against the holy God who sent his son to die for us because we are sinners. And listen to this, when we take his son for granted, our disobedience doesn't grip us as strongly. A friend of mine puts it this way, you've heard me say it before, the power of no is in a stronger yes. So you want to defeat sin, you want temptations to lose its grip on you, then be sure your heart is filled with wonder about the beauty of who Jesus is and the marvel of the gospel, and it will be much easier for you to say no, and your heart won't wander when it's been filled with wonder. But the reverse is also true. You don't spend time wondering and standing in awe, then you'll succumb to sin because we worship our way into sin. We don't stumble in it, we worship our way into it. Number five, how's it going? One, two, three, four, or up to five. Keep your scores hidden, but you can't say with integrity, I wanna know Jesus more. Paul counted everything as lost compared with knowing Jesus. It's the kind of heart that never settles into a mediocre relationship with him. And true, there's, there's ebbs and flows. Don't get me wrong, there's, there's times when it's gonna be more and less, but if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm here just because I'm here, I'm not here because I wanna know Jesus more, then the reality is we can really neglect the essence of what progress in the Christian life is all about. Number six, you've begun to see your Christianity as a restriction rather than a joy. See, when you get here, your faith has become a set of actions that you do rather than a relationship with Jesus that you enjoy. This is the danger if you've been raised in a Christian home, if you're a second, third, or fourth generation Christian, if getting up on Sunday just means I go to church, it's just the way, it's like breathing, it's just what we do. And at one level, that's awesome, but at another, it's really dangerous because you can fake it till you can make it. You can walk through life and you do all of the normal routines, you do everything that you know you're supposed to do so that the veneer looks really good, but inside there's no wonder, there's no awe. It's like being married, you're technically married, but it's been a long time since your wife has walked down the stairs and you've said, wow. Instead she just comes down and you're like, yeah, yeah, relate, let's go. <laughs> and that's what your marriage is like. You're more worried about getting there on time than you are savoring the beauty of this woman who loves you. Next, and finally, someone or something excites you more than Jesus does. 
based upon what you talk about, what you think about, Jesus is no longer higher than barely second place in your life. And the central problem is that the gospel and the news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners has become way too normal. It's lost its awe. So this text and the idea of wonder help to ask the question, where is my awe as it relates to this message? So you took score, hopefully. We have seven signs. Let me just encourage you. If you had a score of four or more, you need to really think about what's going on. You need to consider what's going on inside my soul, what's happening here, because so you're not safe if you have three, you're not safe if you have two, you're not safe if you have one, but you got four, brother, sister, you need to think carefully about what's rolling on inside of your soul because God didn't intend for you just to kind of walk through life losing the beauty and the awe of what the gospel is. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you're a big one, I'm a big one, and the fact that God rescued us from ourselves and has taken away the guilt and judgment that we deserve is absolutely unbelievable. And it also means that if you're here today and you're wondering, not wondering like awe, but wondering like confused, the central message of the Bible is this. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to rescue us from the mess of the world and the mess within us. And because of a relationship with him, God gives us new hearts. He helps us to change the thing that we could never change, which is what we love. And when that happens, it's unbelievable. And so friends, Luke 2 calls us to be a people who never lose the wonder of the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that there is a, a freedom and a fullness that exists because of what's in Luke 2 and the implications of it. And so I pray that you'd make us a people whose hearts just would resonate in a new way with this very familiar story. Lord, there's no hiding from you. you. You know where every single one of us are at today. You know who in this room today is not converted. You know people who are your children and you know those who are your children, but whose hearts are weary, whose hearts are tired, whose hearts are discouraged, and even some whose hearts feel like they're a million miles away. So would you help us, Lord, fulfill the call of the psalmist, Lord, unite our hearts, we pray to fear your name. And even now, use this message and even this moment of consideration for us just to call out to you and say, Lord, would you help me? Help me to see and savor the beauty of who you are. So God, we repent today of our wayward wondering. Renew us, we pray, with the joy of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name.